Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. We are in lesson 48 of our chronological journey through the gospel. So we began back last year at the beginning of the year, working our way, looking at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I've been trying to mesh them somewhat together in a cohesive study of the word of God and taking a little bit of all of them. Today, we get a touch of each one because we happen to be in a portion of scripture that is part of the synoptic gospels. If you do not know that word, it simply means uh, the Gospels that have a similarity between them. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They almost seem that they were uh, coming from the same documents when they put the Gospels together. We know that the Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God, but today uh, some of the scholars believe that One of the uh, most likely scenarios is that Mark wrote his gospel first and then Matthew and Mark used, Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel to help kind of give a a form, a layout of their gospels. And they do run on a similar parallel. There is a mysterious gospel that I wouldn't say gospel, the document, they simply describe it as Q uh, today. So they would say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke used as a reference Q, and then Matthew and Luke used Q and Mark as their reference point. And then we have the Gospel of John, who comes from a totally different perspective. It is believed to be the very last of the Gospels written, and some believe that John, having an understanding of the Gospels that had already been written by that time, decided that he would kind of fill in some of the missing points. And he really gets into some details that the other Gospels do not talk about. But today, we are in the Synoptic Gospels. And we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all telling us of the same accounts. I titled this message, Unashamed Followers of Christ. And we're going to look at Matthew 16, 13 through 20 and asking the question, who is Jesus? Because Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then we're going to go over to Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, where Jesus, for the first time, and he does this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three times, he tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem I am going to suffer there, I'm going to be put to death, and I'm going to resurrect on the third day. So he, this is the first of those predictions of his death and resurrection. We're going to look at that from Mark 8, 31 and 30, through 33. And then we're going to go over to Luke's gospel, since I have all three of the gospels playing in on this one. I took from each one for our teaching. And we're going to talk about daily taking up our cross 
from Luke 9, verses 23 through 27. So we're going to begin in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, picking up in verse 13, verses 13 and 14. The question, who is Jesus? And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? I, the Son of Man, am. And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. So they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Lily and I, uh, a few others from the church, had the privilege of seeing this area when we were in Israel. And uh, we're really far north in Israel at this time. It's actually at uh, the foot of Mount Hermon. And it, it really plays in to where we are heading in the gospel accounts. Right now, we're in the final year of Christ. He is working his way. And when we get after Easter, we'll get to the learning about the mountain of transfiguration. So he's working his way to a very high mountain. The mountain's never known or named for us in Scripture, but here in Matthew 17, 1, since my Bible's open to it, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a very high mountain by themselves, and there would be the mountain of transfiguration. And uh, in history, some have tried to say that the mount, high mountain was in Israel proper, but as we follow the journey of Christ, he's right next to a very high mountain right now, about 10 to 13,000 feet, Mount Hermon. And what makes this base of this mountain, Caesarea Philippi, this town, very interesting. Historically, is, uh, it is one of the tributary heads of the Jordan River. So even now at the base of the mountain, the water just bubbles up. And uh, one of the guys on our tour group uh, took a drink of that water. Now, I've, as a teenager, drank water right out of a creek, and after three days of being severely sick, I'll never just go to a stream and drink again. But he seemed to be fine the rest of the trip, so good for him. It was clean water, uh, but it bubbles up right there. But it also has a very deep and dark cavern, and it has historically been part of pagan worship at this area where they had worshiped the god of Bel, Abel and also uh, Panes or Panium has been the Greeks as they call it a very deep dark cavern uh, the pagan god Pan that has been worshiped there and even to this day you can see there as you're looking at it carved into the side of the mountain they have the pool where the water is bubbling up and you can walk over from the pool over to the foot of the mountain where you're at at that particular area and you can see the pagan carvings in the mountain so this was a place of pagan worship it was Caesarea Philippi because uh, Herod Philip enlarged its city he named it that of Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from Caesarea that's on the sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea on the coast. And it was there that Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Their answers, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. So Herod the Tetrarch, who had killed John, 
thought that Jesus's powers were evidence that he was John the Baptist who had resurrected from the dead. We read of that in Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2. By this time, John had been put to death, and John did no miracles. In fact, the Gospels tell us that while he was on earth, John did no miracles. But seeing the miracles and hearing the accounts of Jesus and what he was doing, Herod felt that this had to be John who, whom he had put to death. So John the Baptist, one of those answers. The other was that this is Elijah. Now this comes from the very closing of the Old Testament as we have it in our English Bibles from Malachi 4 verse 5 that prophesies that Elijah the prophet will come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there is this prophecy right now that's still there. Jesus would even talk about this in Matthew 17, 11, saying, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. He'll go on to say that if you will understand this, Elijah has come, He's talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, but he said, Elijah is indeed coming. Elijah is coming. And so this was on the hearts of the people. This is Elijah who is prophesied would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Others thought perhaps he's Jeremiah, perhaps one of the other prophets. While there is no Old Testament prophecy foretelling of the return of Jeremiah, the people, they grouped Jesus into this category of the great prophets of the Old Testament. The disciples, though, No one was saying in their response, the disciples, remember, this is what the people are saying. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? The disciples say, well, some think you are John the Baptist, others, Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. They did not say, well, the people are saying that you are the Christ, the son of God. The people at this point, the majority of the people did not believe that he was the Messiah. But regarding the prophet, this is significant in Deuteronomy 18:15 and also in verse 18 God promised through Moses saying the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst from your brethren and him you shall hear I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded them. So there was always this expectation of a coming prophet, one like Moses, a promise of scripture that we tie uh, back to Moses. He's going to be a prophet like Moses. But an interesting thing that the book of Deuteronomy as it closes out and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going off script here so I'm trying to find the passage that I'm looking for while I'm talking about these things and uh, here it is Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 so there was earlier on the prophecy that there's going to be a prophet like me that will 
know the Lord face to face. But when we come to the very closing of the book, just two verses back from the last of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34.10, it says, But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So the prophecy is the prophet, one like Moses. Book of Deuteronomy ends saying, since that time, there has not been a prophet like Moses, one who had knew the Lord face to face. There was this expectation of a coming prophet, one who would be like Moses. That expectation was for the Messiah. And although they may not have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, many believe that he spoke for God. Remember, there'd been no prophet in Israel for over 400 years until the arrival of John the Baptist. Therefore, being confused by the leaven of the doctrine of the religious rulers, we looked at this last week, the false teaching of traditions by the religious rulers, they were not accustomed to hearing someone proclaim the word of God in truth like Jesus was doing. And so they were really unable to discern the ministry of Jesus, unable to discern who Jesus actually was. In John 7, verses 12 and 13, it says, There was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary. He deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of Jesus, for they feared the Jews. So this really uh, brings us into that last year of Jesus. There's a lot of contention surrounding Jesus. So he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asked, verses 15 and 16, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus was not concerned with, at this point, he wasn't concerned with what others said. All right, we got that out of the way. Now we know what they believe, what they're saying he was concerned with what his disciples believed. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. To this day, there is a wide variety of beliefs concerning Jesus. Muslims recognize Jesus as a significant person. While Muslims believe Jesus to be revered as a prophet and apostle of God, they do not believe that he is any more than this. They do not believe that he is God's only begotten son and that he came to die for the sins of the world. Judaism denies that Jesus was the Messiah, that Mary was a virgin, that Jesus rose from the grave. Although they do acknowledge that there was a Jesus. Hinduism, it's a little more difficult when you get into India where there's a lot of Hinduism there. There's a variety of beliefs there. And so some believe that he is a Hindu saint based on his life and teachings. Others, that he is one of many gods. We learned this from our brother, Pastor Abraham, who is now with the Lord. But he would often say that there are... Uh, he was he, At the time, he would say there was one point... One billion people in India and 300 million gods. And to them, adding Jesus, just one more God, it was no big deal. 
that he was one of many gods. And still others see Jesus as a symbol of what humans can attain, but that he wasn't a true historical person. So that's Hinduism. Buddhists, they also vary on their belief concerning Jesus. Some uh, number him and his characteristics as being described living the life of one that a Buddhist might live, teaching and helping others, embracing the truth. Others might say that he was a wise teacher, but they don't see him as divine in Christianity. So that's what the world might be saying. We looked at a few of them. Muslims, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhist, Christianity. Jesus is the central figure of our faith. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate who walked among us. He is the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament. We read about him in the New Testament. He came, he lived, he died, he offered his life as a sacrifice for our sin, offering forgiveness of sin and eternal life to those who accept him as the Lord and Savior of their life. What are others saying about Jesus? That's one thing. It's good to even know what others are thinking or saying about Jesus. But the important thing for us is what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe? And Jesus responded to Peter when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That simply means son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So Jesus lets Peter know. Peter, you didn't figure this one out on your own. The Spirit of God clues you in on this one. But it's a good thing. And we'll read when we get to John's Gospel one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit from John 14, 26, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance those things that I've said to you. So that is an actual ministry of the Holy Spirit. And here we see it in action. You didn't learn this one on your own, Peter. It's the Spirit of God who revealed this to you. You didn't say this on your own doing. He rejoiced over Peter. In fact, in Luke 10, 21, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. So the revelation, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Petros. Now that's Peter's proper name, Petros. And upon this Petra, I will build my church. So we go into the language of the New Testament, the Greek, Koine Greek, and we see that there is a a wordplay going on here of Petros and Petra. Petros was Peter's proper name. And it, it means a stone, a ledge, or a cliff. But it also speaks of something that's part of a larger structure. Petra speaks of a massive rock. It speaks of uh, a sturdy stone, a foundation, 
So we say that you are Peter, you're part of this larger structure of this massive rock, the Petra. And although Petros became a very significant leader in the Lord's church, he's only part of the larger structure of the church itself, that which is built upon the foundation, the Petra, we might say, of Jesus Christ. In fact, that word Petra is applied to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10:4, where they tell us that all drank from that same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual Petra that followed them, and that Petra was Christ. Uh, so they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And although attacks against the church have come in every generation, the attacks of our generation have the church perhaps seeking, churches, I should say, seeking new ways to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sadly, many of these churches have compromised the basic principles of our faith. This is because they've decided to build upon a different foundation other than Christ Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house. They did not fall because it was founded upon the rock. I looked it up, Petra. It was founded upon Petra. And are you building your life upon that foundation that Christ Jesus has laid? Then Jesus said to Peter, 19 and 20, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So the kings of the keys of the kingdom of heaven uh, given to Peter, some have said that this was Jesus saying, Peter, you are the first pope of my church. Now, the Catholic Church would tie uh, that back to this passage. And I, I wouldn't take it that far. I would say that Peter was very significant in the early church. And here are some of the keys that I see that were significant in Peter's ministry. We find them all in the book of Acts. That it was on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up with the other 11 apostles after they'd been filled with the Spirit, they preached the Word of God to the people, and 3,000, the Word says about 3,000, I got reprimanded when I was a young preacher in my 20s by someone once because I didn't use the word about, so about 3,000, I'll never forget that, about 3,000 came to faith on that day, Acts 2.14, Peter standing up with the 11. Peter is identified with the Jews coming to faith there on the day of Pentecost. 3,000, about 3,000 coming to faith on that day. Now you'll know why I always come back and say about. But then when Philip brought the gospel to the Samaritans, Samaritans in the Bible were half Jewish, half Greek, uh, they came into play 
after the 10 northern tribes of Israel got conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians removed most of the Israeli popular, uh, population, moved them, that's the Assyrian practice was to move them and really take away the people's culture. And they brought in five other nations who ended up intermarrying with the Israelis that remained there and created the Samaritan race from that. Well, Philip brought the gospel to the Samaritans, but it wasn't until Peter and John came, prayed, that they received the Holy Spirit. So we have on the day of Pentecost, Peter is there when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, preached, and about 3,000 were saved. And then when the Samaritans came to faith, it wasn't until Peter and John showed up, prayed for them that they received the Holy Spirit, Acts 8:15, And then Peter was called to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, where while he was preaching the word of God, the people believed and were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here we see Peter again, as the gospel is being presented to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, that Peter was part of each of those stages of the church growth. In fact, Peter came to that realization when he came to Cornelius's house in Acts 10, 34 through 36. He said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and the works righteousness is accepted by him. And the word of God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And clearly, Peter played an active role in the early church. He was there at significant milestones, we might say, of church growth in the early days of the book of Acts. And Jesus, though, said to Peter, Upon this I will build my church, that declaration of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And even though Paul said that we've been built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets. He also said in Ephesians 2, 20 and 22, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, that we are part of that greater structure of Christ Jesus himself, our rock, that cornerstone. Isaiah 28:16 Behold I lay in Zion a sure foundation a tried stone a precious cornerstone whoever believes in him will not act hastily a church is not built upon Peter but upon the confession of faith in Jesus Christ the son of the living God and it, you know to this day there are a lot of opinions concerning Jesus but the question remains for us, what do you believe about Jesus? As we head over, and we could keep on in Matthew's gospel, but we also find this account in Mark's gospel. So we'll head over to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. So sometimes shortly after this, they're in the area of Caesarea Philippi. They're going to be making their way up a very high mountain. Many believe it's Mount Hermon. And Jesus began to teach his disciples. So during this last 
year of Jesus's ministry. The theologians call that last year the year of opposition. Jesus would take a lot of time to isolate himself from the crowds, to spend time with his disciples, to teach them. And here he began to talk about his coming death, his suffering, his resurrection from the grave. And he will actually do this three times. He will tell his 12, this is going to happen to me. It's coming soon. And they did not comprehend. Yet, this is the first of the three. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So after Peter's confession, Jesus began to teach about his coming death. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's great. We have to remember that at this point and even up to his death, the disciples, in their minds, Jesus was the Messiah of the second coming, not the Messiah of the first coming. So we look and we wonder, why didn't you guys get it? Why didn't you understand what Jesus was talking about? Because they were kind of more like we are supposed to be in the church today with the expectation that Jesus is coming any time. He's coming to... Uh, bring judgment upon this world. That's what they believed. They did not understand the Messiah of the first coming, the mission of Jesus Christ, where he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. They didn't understand about his suffering, his rejection by the religious rulers, his being put to death on the cross, his being raised up on the third day. God had sent his only begotten son in order that we could have life through him, but it came through his sacrifice through the cross. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus, speaking about this work that he had to do, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 7, 14, Jesus praying to his father, he said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And in John, thir- in John 19.30, he cried out from the cross, it is finished. Jesus knew the work that the Lord had set before him. And he began to talk to his disciples about that, of his being rejected by the religious rulers, his being killed, put to death, and resurrecting on the third day. And being shocked at this, What does Peter do? Remember, this is Rocky. Jesus just gave him a great attaboy. Way to go, Rocky. Man didn't teach you about this, but my father in heaven. So Rocky thinks that he is going to straighten out Jesus. And the Bible tells us, verses 32 and 33, Jesus spoke openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, Peter, uh, I just, it's hard to envision this, but Peter coming up to Jesus. Jesus, can I talk to you for a minute? Um, yeah, not, not here with everybody listening. Let's, let's, let's take this one private. And Jesus knowing, all right, Rocky, let's go. 
Let's hear what you have to say. And so he began to rebuke him, Peter rebuking Jesus. And when he had turned around, he looked at the disciples. So Peter, wanting to keep this between him and Jesus, Jesus turned it around and said to all his disciples, Peter, Petros, Rocky, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Jesus, he turned around, he faced his disciples, he let them know that Peter was in the wrong here. He wanted to reinforce, not only to Peter, but to his disciples as well, to understand the true purpose of his coming. That at this point, Peter, who just had this great revelation from the Spirit of God concerning Jesus, now Jesus saying to Peter, this is of Satan. You're of the devil right now. You're not speaking from the Spirit of God. You're speaking from a different spirit. You're speaking from the Spirit of man, but it's not the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us in Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, and this is Jesus speaking to his church, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So it's not a bad thing. In fact, I would say it is a very good thing when the Lord rebukes us because he does it, one, because he loves us. And number two, because he's seeking that we would repent and get in fellowship with him once again. And Satan is continually attempting to get Jesus to forsake his purpose as our Redeemer. Satan playing into this beautiful scene at this point. He was there in the wilderness temptations. And now through Peter, he speaks. And soon through another disciple, Judas, he would be used. And of Judas, Jesus would say in John 8:44, you are of your father, the devil. And the desire of your father is, is what you do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and he is the father of it. And anytime we get into that place when we're mindful of the things of men more than the things of God, we are in danger of making the same mistake that Peter made on this day. In a sense, we might be like saying, Jesus, uh, can I talk to you for a moment? I just... I need to straighten something out for you. Uh, with you, I mean. It's like, it's not going to work. You're going to get rebuked too. In this world, we are to work. We are to raise our families. We're to even have a vacation every once in a while. But as we live, as long as we live, we are to be mindful of the things of God, the things that God wants to accomplish in and through our lives. And staying mindful of the things of God, it strengthens our faith in Christ. And we could stay in Mark, but since we have the synoptic gospels before us here, they're all speaking about these events. Let's go over to Luke chapter 9 for our final point today. But this is all kind of following the course whether in your Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they all talk about these things that we've been talking about today, mainly from just a slightly different perspective. 
So taking up our cross daily, Mark 9, verses 23 through 27, we pick up in verses 23 through 25. He said to all of them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it if a man gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? So in this passage, Jesus, initially in verse 23, I see four steps that he gives us. First of all, as followers of Christ, those who desire to take up the cross, we need to have a desire. First and foremost, our discipleship begins with a desire to come after Jesus. That desire comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, in John chapter 14, we read there of the Spirit being with the disciples. Jesus said, he now dwells with you. He will be in you. And the work of the Holy Spirit, some have described coming to non-believers, wooing them, persuading them to believe in Christ. We need to have that desire to come to Christ. I believe that part of that desire comes through the work of the Holy Spirit as he draws us to Christ. Since the fall of man, sin, sin has dominated our lives and there is no hope escape. But for the reason that Jesus came to give his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin and to give us rest for our weary souls, do you desire that rest today? Then you must desire to come after Jesus. He's the only one who can give us true rest. In Matthew 11:28, it says, Come to me, all you who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Second, we must deny ourselves. Self-denial goes against really the fallen nature of humanity. It really speaks about our not giving in to the desires of our flesh. And the only way that we can truly accomplish this type of denial is having that new nature that Christ Jesus gives us through faith in his name. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it teaches us that if anyone in, is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And as new creations, we are given the ability to overcome our flesh because the Holy Spirit places a new desire in our hearts, one that is willing to deny the flesh that we will please God. Third, we must daily take up our crosses. And I think that's significant that that word daily was put in here. We must take up our cross. We must take up our cross daily is what the word says. This is something we have to do every day as believers in Jesus Christ. In our world today, a cross is a religious symbol. It is a fashion statement. In Jesus's day, it was the means of capital punishment and it was cruel. And so for us to say we must take up our cross daily, it's like, okay, I got my cross on, my necklace. They understood, they saw the Roman crosses. And we read about Jesus' crucifixion, how they took him off that first day he died, the same day he was crucified, he died, they took him off, they put him in the tomb. That wasn't customary for the Romans. They only did that because of the 
uh, feast of Passover that was taking place. They only did that for the benefit of peace for the Jews. They would normally just let the people hang on the crosses because pretty good crime deterrent. You turn against the Romans, you might be nailed to a cross. Even the children would see these things. They knew what a cross was. You must take up the cross. There was a method of capital punishment. And today we are to daily take up our crosses. It means Romans 6.11 to reckon ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally we are to follow Jesus. And following Jesus is the mark of a disciple. It is through following Jesus that we learn how we should live. It is through following Jesus that we find true life. In verse 24, Jesus does a word play. Let's read that verse again. In 9, I think I've turned my page. 9.24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So he does a word play. He twists it around. You want to save your life in this life, your self-centered lifestyle that you might have. You dream of wealth and success, and you may even accomplish it. But ultimately, you will lose your very soul. But if you want to save your life, save your soul, then you need to lose your life for the sake of Christ. And sadly, many in our world today, they exchange salvation, the salvation of their soul for the wealth of this temporal world. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what profit is it? To a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And there's nothing that we can give in exchange for our soul. In fact, the Word of God tells us that the redemption of our souls is costly. Psalm 49.8 And the cost of that was the very life of Jesus Christ. As Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spots. And so then Jesus said, verses 26 and 27, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and his father's and in his fathers and of the holy angels. So we're going to be ashamed of Christ today. And what the word of God says today, the Lord said, I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come into my glory. Verse 27, I tell you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until we see the kingdom of God. So Jesus said, anyone who is ashamed of him, rejects him, he would in turn be ashamed of them, reject them when he comes into his glory, speaking about his second coming, when he comes in power and great glory, as Matthew tells us in Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Now, that last line that we read, it really sets us up for the transfiguration. We will not get to look at this until after Easter, because next Sunday, Pastor Kevin will be giving a a message for us, a Palm Sunday message, and kind of set us up for the week of celebration of Easter that's coming right upon us. So 
is kind of setting us up. There's a very good author, the Holy Spirit. He knows how to set us up. What is he talking about? It'll be explained, but we have to wait a few weeks to get into it. As true followers of Jesus Christ, we must desire him, deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily and follow him. On October 28, 1949, Jim Elliott wrote these words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And right around six years later, January 8, 1956, Jim, along with four other missionaries, were killed down in Ecuador. Like 11 of the 12 apostles, Jim Elliott, his friends, we too are to be unashamed followers of Christ. Those who acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Followers who continually build our lives upon the foundation, that Petra, and the stone of Jesus Christ. Those, though we live in a depraved world that seems to be more depraved every day, we are to stay our mind upon the things of God. We're to have a strong desire for Jesus. We are to deny ourselves. We're to take up our crosses daily that we might follow Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we thank you, Father, for your word you've given us today. And maybe, Lord, we have failed to daily take up our crosses. Maybe, Lord, we've failed in that denying ourselves, Lord. We've put things, other things, before you. And today, Lord, we just want to lay things out before you today, bring confession before you today. Those whom you love, Lord, you rebuke that we might be restored. So, Lord, if your scripture is been a scripture of rebuke for us today for some reason, then Lord, let us hear the rebuke knowing that you love us, that we might be restored, our relationship with you refreshed and renewed. Whatever work, Lord, you're desiring to do, maybe someone hearing my voice, whether on radio, through social media, maybe it's here today, They've never accepted you as Savior. Maybe today, Lord, it's that desiring to come after you, to believe in you, to acknowledge that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whatever the need, Lord, we pray that you would be with us now. In the name of Jesus, amen.